Hello and welcome to Faith in Politics. In this month's episode we have an interview with Lord Benjamin Mancroft. We have a monthly meeting by David Main, who is a Baptist minister. But first, there really is only one place to start. Again, it's with Brexit, isn't it, Bethan? And March the 29th is so close now, we can, we can almost count down the hours. And it's extraordinary that we just really don't know where we're going, do we? We could uh, end up with a no-deal Brexit on the 29th of March. We could end up with an extension. We could end up with a second referendum. And we could end up with a general election. Where on earth are we, Bethan, and, and um, how are you feeling about it all? As for where we are, I am absolutely happy to say I have no idea. Um, which I think at this point, it's I've, got to, I've come to the point where I just need to embrace the fact that I don't know. <laughs> and I don't think many people do. We're, uh, we are recording this on the day that they're voting on the Article 50 possible extension. So um, in a matter of hours, we will find out whether Article 50 will be extended. Um, at this point, for me, that seems like a very logical thing to do. Um, we have less than two weeks left before we leave, and that's not enough time, I don't think. However, I do understand that many MPs feel that, that to delay would be to possibly sign over the idea that there might not ever be a Brexit. Well, what's extraordinary is that the Prime Minister who uh, came into Downing Street with her mission to deliver Brexit, that is what she, she arrived to do despite having campaigned to remain, that, that she is the one who has been talking about the possibility of there being no Brexit at all, that in her desire to get her deal, which she has spent the last two years negotiating with the European Union, in, in her desire to get that through, she has been talking about the possibility of no Brexit at all. It's not the People's Vote people that have uh, pressured her into doing that, it, it's her desire to get the right wing of her party and the Democratic Unionist Party to, to vote this through. She has been incredibly strategic and tactical in regards to who, is, who she is attempting to win over with this deal. Unfortunately, the backstop has again and again and again been the downfall, <laughs> um, along with the fear from both sides of the argument that the deal is a bad one. Um, however, despite the fact that I, I, I do feel that Theresa May's actions have been incredibly reckless, and I, I'm happy to say that. I think she's been. Tell, tell me why. I think that her her willingness to run down the clock um, is very dangerous, and I, I also think that, the, as I said, the way she has been so tactical in pushing for certain areas of her party to vote um, means that complete other sides of the argument have been completely ignored. Um, however, saying that, in her defence. And this is something that I've been saying for for a while now. We it took us ten years to choose to join the EU. It took a ten year process of being told no, of the debate, of the referendum. We were in it for over forty years, and the expectation that we can leave in two, or two and a half as it is now, is is a pretty unreasonable expectation, I think. Um, especially considering it's never been done before. What has struck me as reckless is, is not only that she's spoken about no Brexit, which I feel is not in keeping with her responsibility as the Prime Minister of this country to deliver on, on the result of the referendum. The British people, Absolutely. whether you like it or not, uh, yeah. spoke decisively in, in June of 2016. But, but what has been reckless, I think, in her approach has been talking about the consequences of no deal around Ireland and, and the fragile situation there and possibly around the, the resurgence of, of Scottish nationalism and another independence referendum north of the border. And it may be the case that Theresa May is able to get the withdrawal agreement through. She has, time and time again during her premiership, 
defied all expectations. And it is possible that uh, we're talking in the aftermath of Meaningful Vote 2, which went down by 149, uh, a significant improvement on a, on a deal that was voted down by 230 two months early. It's possible that she's able to convince enough Conservatives that this Brexit deal is the best available because the threat of an extension is there. The European Union is going to expect to, to see a change in approach by the government uh, in order to grant an extension and they would be right to do so because there's no point in us extending for another three months or another six months only for us to be in this exact same position uh, then. The EU are going to want to see some kind of um, some kind of commitment on our side that there will be a change in approach. It, it may be that the more Eurosceptic members of the Conservative Party look at that and think this is the best deal we're going to get and, and vote for it after all. And if she does that, then you have to say that this extremely high-risk gamble that she has played has paid off. Only time will tell. I think it very much depends on, as we say, if we have an extension, then I imagine the EU are going to say, OK, Mrs May, change some of your red lines. And from the very beginning, she has had this, this, strict, this strict series of red lines of things that she will not budge mm. on. And to her credit, she hasn't budged on them. Um, and despite the fact that I think that it, it could be a positive thing, on the complete flip side, it could also mean that the EU take that to mean that we're willing to renegotiate in a way that Theresa May simply isn't willing to vote. Or, or not simply able to vote, or, or, or yeah. in a way that, that yeah. Theresa May simply isn't able to act in order to honour the result of the referendum. Yeah. She's been clear from the beginning that leaving the European Union means leaving the single market and the customs union. I think what's crucial for the survival of her deal and, and for the success of her deal is what the Attorney General says, because what the, the concern around the backstop has been that we will be involuntarily and indefinitely detained in the backstop I think if the Attorney General had come back and been able to say that the legal risk had disappeared, then we, we could have seen the meaningful vote go through at, at the second time of asking. There needs to be clear advice about how the UK can withdraw from this international treaty, but what's extraordinary is that the backstop is only designed to come into force in December 2020 if we can't, uh, we can't agree a, a trade arrangement that satisfies the Irish border question. Um, in the 18 months that will follow us, in theory, leaving on the 29th of March with this yeah. deal. So we're talking about hypothetical scenarios that may never even come into effect anyway. That's the big hang-up. Yeah. Um, and it's extraordinary that the whole success and failure of the deal depends on this. And that's the thing that I think people are forgetting, is that we're not even at the hard bit of the negotiations yet. The, the difficult bit comes when you when we have to, in the transition period, which if this deal passes um, before the 29th of March, we'll enter a two-year transition period in which trade agreements are agreed, and that's when the real unpleasant political work will begin. Are you saying this is just the beginning, <laughs> Bethany, of I, our yeah, Brexit times? I do, I do think it is, and, and, and a lot of this um, conversation will happen behind the scenes, and the reason it, 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 it almost feels like a crisis time at the moment is because we have this, this encroaching deadline of the 29th. And it's, it's just the most bizarre situation because from the EU perspective, I don't like it, but I completely get why they're being so difficult because they need, they need this to act as an example of why other countries shouldn't try. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say that Theresa May's deal doesn't pass the House of Commons. 
what next? It, where, what is the rationale for another referendum as you see it, Bethan? Because you've been talking for a few months about the need to go back to the people mm. to solve a problem that Parliament, so far, hasn't managed to solve. Yes, it's a question that is coming up again and again. And, um, however, my opinion has ch- shifted quite a lot in regards to a second referendum. Um, I think that if Parliament can't ha- make a decision, um, it's the only logical answer, is to put it back to the people. Now, that's not a perfect situation, and it's not necessarily something that is democratically positive, because if, if our elected Parliament can't make up a decision, it, it, it seems a little bit counterintuitive to say, oh, let's just put it back to the people. However, I do stand by what I've said about the fact that the situation has changed and that the public are increasingly aware of the complexity of the issue and the, um, the difficulty. And um, my thoughts on this are not completely cemented yet, but I, I do think there is an immense issue with saying to the people will give you another choice because you realise you were wrong the first time. Well, rightly or wrongly, having another referendum where it's remain or leave again would be interpreted by many people as what you've just described, as, as saying to people, well, we've asked you what, what you thought exactly. in June 2016. Yeah, yeah. Um, we don't like your answer. Yeah. I, I think you're right. It would be profoundly damaging to our democratic system. Because people would, would, would lose trust. Well, why why would you ever vote again and think that your vote... Matters. Matters, but also, why would you ever be able to go with certainty knowing that your vote would be honoured mm. uh, and, and that it would be... The, the outcome would be delivered in full? I think it would set an extremely dangerous precedent to go back to the people and ask them the same question again. I think if you were going to have another referendum on this issue, the, the fairest way would be to ask people whether they would like to leave on the terms that Theresa May has agreed, mm. or for us to leave without a deal. Yeah, yeah. I find myself in a pickle because I completely agree with you. It, it could have the capacity of causing a complete crisis of democracy where millions of people feel that they can no longer trust the system which has... which claims to represent them. On the other hand, if Parliament cannot make a decision, and if it is increasingly getting stuck in this deadlock, then what is the alternative? We, we don't have another option for, for getting this done. We, we, we don't have that in our system. Um, unless something weird and obscure were to be created with the House of Lords or with some bizarre committee or something which which, which isn't going to happen, which, uh, which happen. is why I think yeah. that there is still a very good possibility, whether it happens in the next couple of weeks or at yeah. some point in the future, that a deal like the one Theresa May has brought before the House will pass through the House of Commons and yeah. we will leave in an orderly way. And, and in the event that a deal can't pass, you would probably need a general election to sort out a, the, the fundamental problem that we have at the moment, which is that our government is not governing, that our government is incapable mm. of, of passing... Um, just about anything at yeah. the moment and so I don't think that whatever happens we can go very long before a general election comes and, and that could lead us to a situation where you end up potentially out of this chaotic mess with Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister and one of the things that has really disappointed me throughout this whole process is that as somebody who arrived in 2015 as the leader of the opposition with 
um, a new way of doing politics and, and inspired an awful lot of people, as he did say, that Jeremy Corbyn has failed to provide an answer to the single biggest political issue of our time around Brexit. I just don't know what Jeremy Corbyn thinks. And I disagree with some of the ways that Theresa May has gone about negotiating this deal and Mm -hmm. has tried to ram it through the House of Commons in in a reckless way, as you've described. But I do feel like she is somebody who has a plan in a place, Westminster, where there are not an awful lot of alternative plans. The Labour Party has released a statement of what it would do people seem to ignore that, but there, there has been a statement made and the Labour Party has said that this is what we would do. Um, but the fact that the fact they're not in government means that like, we, that we don't know if that would ever happen. But I think that it's important to remember that... like it, I, I don't know what Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party's principled objection is to the withdrawal agreement as it stands, other than the fact that if the EU passed new regulations on workers' rights and environmental protections, that we would no longer be obliged to carry those, uh, that we would no longer be obliged to implement those ourselves. And I found myself thinking, well, of course you wouldn't be obliged to implement those ourselves because we wouldn't be a member of the European Union. I, I feel like we should all have more faith in our ability to survive outside the EU than is currently being demonstrated by many of our MPs. This is clearly a very, very important decision about the future of our country. And my sense is that it's better to get this right than to do it fast. And so if an extension is what we need, then we should pursue one. Up next, we have a monthly musing from David Main, who is a Baptist minister in Shoebrunes in Essex. He is also the moderator of the Baptist Union Council and a trustee of an anti-FGM charity called 28 Too Many. in the season of Lent and Lent is a season in church life that I've come to appreciate more each year and particularly this year. It seems we're living in a time of deep social and spiritual upheaval. We're sort of off autopilot and it feels like we're reassessing so much. Are are we as a nation in a season of Lent? I think in some ways we might be. If Lent is a season of examination, of facing reality, of being laid bare, of throwing dust up into the air, of deconstructing, then I think the parallels are quite profound. My experiences of the 2015 and 2017 general elections and of the Brexit referendum have made me aware of how much of an echo chamber my life can be, and in particular my social media world. There just aren't that many dissenting voices. And so status after status, tweet after tweet, article after article, a variation on the same message is given. It seems like the whole world is voting one way until the results are announced and it turns out that more people actually voted for someone or something else. My friends, or at least the ones who have been more vocal with their politics were on none of those occasions particularly representative of the opinion of the nation. Whether your echo chamber is one of the left or of the right, something that's intentional or something that's gradually evolved, one of the dangers that it presents to us is the opportunity to demonise our opponents without being challenged. 
Discussions about policy can quickly descend into personal attacks on those who disagree with us. Not only does this demean those involved, but it also prevents any decent discussion about policy actually getting off the ground. Not too long ago, we were pleased to have a visiting speaker for our Sunday morning service here in Shoebury. And he spoke to us from John chapter 8 and the story of Jesus writing in the dust, which is one of my favourite bits of scripture. We rejoice that Jesus didn't condemn the woman in adultery, but it caused our congregation to fall silent when it was pointed out to us that Jesus does not condemn the Pharisees either. He clearly does not agree with their actions, but he does not condemn them. I wonder if there is something in that in these febrile times as we work through our Brexit countdown calendars, as the spectre of another general election looms large enough that we might make every effort to engage thoroughly without resorting to insults and a mean hearted spirit. Attributed to John Wesley are these words spoken in the run up to the general election in the autumn of 1774. He's, he said, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And significantly, I think, three, to take care that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Perhaps just perhaps our challenges have not actually changed that much since 1774. Perhaps the way in which we engage across the political divide is as crucial now as it has ever been. Perhaps we might pray that God would keep our hearts soft and open even to those who think differently to us. I had a conversation with Lord Benjamin Mancroft, who is a member of the House of Lords. This conversation was very wide-ranging, and we uh, spoke about everything from House of Lords reform to um, the treatment of drug addiction in this country. I hope you enjoy. So thank you so much for joining us today, Lord Mancroft. It's a real pleasure Most to have you. You've worked for many years with the National Lottery and Interlotto. Um, how do you view the um, current changes and reforms to the gambling industry? Just for our listeners who are not aware, um, recently there's been um, a change in law on fixed odds betting terminals where the maximum bet has been reduced from £100 to £2. And it was a, quite a large deal a few weeks ago. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on it. Yeah, I think I, I was involved in the in the original legislation that allowed it, and <clears throat> the Secretary of State of, of the day um, was conned by the gambling industry and by these, by these machines, mm. and they were new and nobody knew what they were going to do. Obviously, so you, you couldn't know, mm. um, but nevertheless, they pulled the wool over her eyes and persuaded her to allow them, and they, the gambling industry, in particular in this case the bookmakers, um, have become too became too reliant on these machines. You don't want any business which is reliant on one product. Mm. And it's quite clear that they are um, their machine, they are obsessive machines. People absolutely, you, 
door playing them. I'm, I'm fascinated. I've been mildly involved, as you said, in the gambling industry for 30 years. I personally dislike gambling and don't gamble because I'm poor, I'm a coward, and I can't count. So I don't gamble. But I've observed gam- people gambling. My interest in it has always been lotteries mm-hmm. as a means of raising money um, for charities. Um, and I got sucked into it, because you get sucked into things in politics. Um, we have always had in this country an extremely well-regulated, quite um, medium-sized gambling industry, but quite a sophisticated one. Um, and the 2005 Gambling Act, which sought to modernise it, in the same way that the Blair government sought to modernise the drinking laws, um, didn't really work because a it didn't take account of the internet, which none of us at that stage knew what the possibilities were. Um, it um, completely um, relaxed all the rules on advertising, so we're now swamped in advertising, which I don't think anybody thought was going to happen. And then specifically, these things of these fixed odds betting terminals and um, the. High street bookmakers, which were sort of basically dependent on horse racing, which has been you know a traditional sport in Britain forever and ever and ever, mm-hmm. um, and but and slightly more over the last few years on football, um, have have taken the focus off that, and literally are, and and been dominated by these machines. That's very bad for their industry, and it's quite clearly very bad um, for all the people who who play it. So I'm I'm delighted to see these machines completely restricted. I'd like to see them gone. I think they're a horrible thing. But the other side of the coin is I think it is unlikely that the um, people are something going to go back to, to horse racing the way they did, um, and they will want increasingly to bet on football. And I think that I think that's fine, provided you recognise that these these activities have the potential to cause social harm. Therefore, you regulate them. We introduced, I mean, bookmaking was illegal in, in this country until the 1960s, and, we, and, and we, we regulated and introduced bookmaking, high street bookmaking, because there was so much illegal bookmaking going on, and um, it was thought better to bring it within control of the law and get it off the back streets. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that was the right thing to do. Same with casinos, we did that at the same time. I mean, the world changes, you have to change with it. And so we did that, and I think that was the right thing. Something really interesting about the gambling industry is that the the regulation of it and the things that happen at the end of gambling adverts like gamble responsibly, so much of the funding for so much of the funding for responsible gambling comes from the gambling industries themselves. So they're in essence aside from the law, regulating themselves, which is a bit problematic. Well no, I don't think that's quite right. I mean they're they're being told to provide this money. They don't they don't say how it's spent. It's and they like don't a tax specify on how much, I think, is the issue. They'll no, I think but it isn't a bad idea. I mean, the alcohol industry has to pay for parts of that. Very and true. and um, so I don't think it's unreasonable that you ask the gambling industry to pay for that. By the way, I think the concept of gambling responsibly is a ludicrous one. Mm. It's like the concept of sensible drinking. Mm. Who wants to drink sensibly? If you're going to drink, you certainly don't want to do it sensibly. So I think those are, I think those are really are childish sort of campaigns. Yeah. But I think... Industries like the alcohol industry, like the gambling industry, do have a responsibility um, to um, mitigate any, any damage that might occur. I think most of the money that's spent, um, that's taken from the gambling industry, and then spent on gambling treatment and advertising and prevention, I think is actually wasted and done really badly. But then the state does those sort of things very badly. Mm. Those things are much better done up, subcontracted elsewhere. 
Um, the state's always been very bad at that. And I think it is the most extraordinary thing in the 2005 Gambling Act that there is a clause which obliges the um, gambling industry to put money into a charity. I don't think there's any other Act of Parliament that obliges an industry to put money into a charity. Charity is something that people donate to if they feel like it. I'm, I'm not comfortable with that kind of concept. I think if you think that's the right way to go, then tax the industry and put the money aside for that. But I, I think it's a clumsy way of doing it. It hasn't really worked. Especially, would you agree that it hasn't worked in relation to supporting addicts of gambling? And no, it hasn't at all. I think yeah. most of the treatment for addicts of gambling is very expensive and pretty useless. Mm-hmm. And if it, if, it was treatment, if it was treatment provided in the alcohol and drug sector, which I know rather more about, um, it wouldn't have passed. They'd have closed it down years ago. It's, it's not fit for purpose. Okay, let's move on to your work in the drug reform and drug, um, that area. So you are um, you've been involved in drug policy reform and the issue of drugs for a very long time. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your work in this area and what change you'd like to see in regards to drug reform? Yeah. Um, I've been involved in drug treatment for about thirty years, and um, in the last fifteen or twenty years, I've also been involved in prevention and education work, which is education and prevention are very different and I've always in the back of my mind been interested in in the law because I'm in Parliament and and that side of it and my conclusions and my thoughts are that drug treatment in this country is on the whole um, pretty second rate and it is because um, the state through the NHS doesn't really understand addiction the, the NHS is the biggest drug dealer in the world. That's why we have a massive prescription drug problem in this country, which makes them no better than um, a drug dealer. Um, very unpopular thing to say, very unpopular to criticise the NHS, but that's, that's the truth. Um, all these prescription drugs are dished out by GPs and, and trusts and health authorities and hospitals, ludicrous, completely uncontrolled dishing out of painkillers tranquilise and stuff like that. So they're as much the problem as anybody else is. The treatment provided in the NHS is on the whole old-fashioned and pretty useless and pretty expensive. People coming through the, the what was the National Treatment Agency, I can't remember if it still is called that, I think about 2 or 3% of them get straight. That's a, a ridiculous and embarrassing figure. There is, however, some very good treatment going on in the private and voluntary sector. And what should happen, in my view, is that the NHS should be buying in services from the private and voluntary sector because they're always going to be small facilities. The NHS is not good at small facilities and it's not good at flexibility. Mm-hmm. And in drug and, treat, drug and alcohol treatment services, you need flexibility, which you can't provide in a big institutional setting like a hospital. So I, I think it's much better to do it that way. Um, of course, the, um, the law requires you to treat drug and alcohol addiction separately. You're allowed to be an alcohol addict, and you get and they do have alcohol services in the NHS, and though they teach people to drink sensibly, oh really? How do you teach an addict to drink sensibly? I mean that's a ludicrous idea, and and they're still doing that, but they don't think that alcohol and drugs has any connection, because um, addiction, drug addiction is is illegal, and therefore it's managed by the Home Office. Now there's a reason not for moving it if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of politics is that while it's in the Home Office, there's a bigger budget. So if you, if you want more money, you leave it there. But realistically, addiction is an illness. It shouldn't be in the Home Office. It should be in the Department of Health. But um, medic, there is no such thing as medical treatment of, of addiction. It's Medical treatment of addiction means dishing out more drugs. 
And so, and, and doctors resent the fact that they don't play a real role in addiction treatment. And doctors, as we all know, are real control freaks, so they want to hang on to it. And officials in the Department of Health think that addiction is a symptom of social deprivation. It's caused by bad housing and bad education and, and uh, unemployment and lack of life chances. And if you had a, a nice um, social democratic government which had perfect social housing, brilliant education, 100% employment, and then the sun would come out every morning and nobody would take drugs again. Of course, this is complete rubbish. If you then say to them, by the way, why do rich people take drugs? They get very embarrassed and don't know the answer to that. So the answer is it's not a symptom of social deprivation. It's a primary health condition and should be treated as such. But after 25, 30 years of making this argument, I can assure you I really got absolutely nowhere. And um, we haven't got close to any real change. We will do one day. So that's treatment. But it, we, we spend a lot on treatments now. We spend the best part of a billion a year on treatment in different forms. And the results we get from it as a taxpayer, getting 2 or 3% of people off drugs, out of, it's just ludicrous. And, and nobody, we wouldn't accept that in any other area mm. of public life. So that needs complete reform. And would you, do you believe there needs to be a move away from the medication and more towards um, talk therapy? And, and yeah, you need, to, you need to get drug addicts off drugs, abstinence. And you yes. teach them how to live an abstinent lifestyle. And yes, quite a lot of them will relapse. Mm. And then you pick them up and do it again. Mm. And that's how people get straight. Drug addicts don't leave happy lives, lead happy lives while they're on drugs. Mm. So putting them into, a, into an expensive facility, taking them off a street drug and putting them on a prescription drug is not the answer for them or their families or society. So we've got to move away from that. And, and yes, it is talk therapies. It's detox, talk therapies, group therapies, whatever it may be, and teaching the programmes to live life free from drug, which is not a negative thing. It's not living without drugs. It's living positively, soberly, positive, clean life. So that's the way of that. Um, drug education is great, except I remember in the first ever drug strategy when Michael Howard was Home Secretary, which is 1992, he wrote in the introduction, teachers will find that their pupils know more about drugs than they do. That is entirely correct. So why do we think that teaching them more is going to mean they will take less. Of course, it doesn't. So drug education is not going to reduce drug use. It's just going to increase knowledge. Now, can you prevent people from taking drugs? I, didn't, I don't know, so I, I got involved in a charity called Mentor 20 years ago, which I think was 25 years ago, and I chaired it here in the UK for a bit. It's a, an international charity. And we looked at what you could do to prevent and the answer is you can do some things to prevent them. They weren't what I thought they were going to be. There's nothing you can do by sort of sitting face to face in front of a child. You can say to them to make that child less likely to take drugs. What you can do is you can identify communities and groups where they are likely or liable to take more drugs. Mm -hmm. That is children who are raised by their grandparents because their parents are not around for lots of reasons. Um, there are children growing up in particular communities like uh, former um, deep fishing communities, former mining communities, where there are particular areas of deprivation, they have a much higher propensity for drug use. If you focus your social care more accurately in those communities, you can reduce the incidence of drug taking in those communities. Actually, that's a really constructive thing to do. When, when we identified this problem with children raised by their grandparents, and the problems are the grandparents are older, don't really have the energy to raise children, they've already done it, they don't want to raise another lot, and they probably don't have as much income because they're older, they're in retirement, and none of their peer group are raising children, so they get rather isolated. 
And at that stage in proceedings, in the um, in the but sort of middle of the Blair government, we discovered that grandparents couldn't get any financial assistance. You could if you were a foster parent or caring in some other way, but not a grandparent. And we went to the Treasurer and said, look, there's an anomaly here. Grandparents don't get any benefits for looking after their grandchildren. And they got it quite quickly, and Gordon Brown changed it in the next budget. And that overnight made a huge difference. We were suddenly able to support these people with this particular problem. So that's targeted social care, and that made their lives better, made their, the raising of those children better, reduced the incidence of drug use. So in, in that context, there are things you could do. If you've got another three hours, there are lots of other things you can do in that. None of them are perfect, but they can all reduce it. Mm. Um, so you can do treatment, you can do prevention, and you can do education. All of these things are useless, in my view, or, or, or are, are not as effective as they would be if um, you allow drugs to be run effectively, the drug market, be run by a massive black market. I mean, at the moment, there's been lots of talk about the difference between the cannabis that hippies used to smoke 20 years ago, and the skunk that kids buy nowadays, which is very much stronger. Most of it because it's, it's grown under lights here in the UK. Um, and that is a complete failure to control the market. We were just talking about gambling and touching on alcohol. If, they, if those are fun but potentially dangerous um, things to do, drinking alcohol and gambling, then you regulate and control them. If, if, and they are, that, that's the right thing to do. If you think drugs are fun, which is why people take them, but are also potentially dangerous, and we know they are very dangerous, then why wouldn't you regulate them? Mm. If you push them outside the law, you push them out of control. If, if your kids are going to take drugs, and I'd rather they didn't, but if they are going to, I would rather they bought them um, in, a, in a shop with the lights on and, and quality on the label and a price that's reasonable from um, a, a proper um, regulated trader rather than buy them in a darkened street corner from a criminal who wishes them harm or doesn't wish them any well at a price they can't afford and buying a product they don't know what it is. That's very dangerous. So you would suggest the legalisation? I would legalise all drugs with a view to regulating them. Okay. Keeping them under very close regulation. Different regulations for different drugs. Get rid of the black market. And by the way, not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't do it overnight, you'd do it in, in steps. But we have to move in that direction. Do you think the work that's going on in America with the legalisation of cannabis has it can show us how that could be possible? Yes, and not just America and Canada and other countries, mm-hmm. Australia and other countries in Europe. Um, yeah, we want to move in steps. We start with medicinal cannabis, mm-hmm. we then move further. We want respectable companies to be re- to be in the business of cannabis that we can regulate, that's right out in the open, where we can see what's going on. And, and everybody says, oh, well, that will make it worse. It may not make it better. Mm. Um, but it will. What, what it will do is have it out in the open. It will be transparent. And, and that's the only way we can seek to control it. At the moment, it's worse and getting worse. And every Home Secretary, every, every time there's a new government, the Home Secretary stands up and says how tough they're going to be on drugs. And five years later, uh, the incidence of drug use and drug crime, drug-related crime and harm, increases. So at the moment things are getting steadily worse, so you've got to find a way of, of breaking that. And, and, and you know, we're living in an age of the most appalling knife crime in London. It was only, in, I think, in the newspapers yesterday that the vast majority of that knife crime and violent crime in London, London involving young people is all around the illegal drug market. You will not get rid of that until you get rid of the illegal drug market. And, and by the way, you won't get rid of it completely. There will always be some crooks about it. But what we want to try and do is get most of it out in the open where we regulate it and get, and get to see what's going on. 
It's really interesting. You spoke about earlier about the um, the education doesn't necessarily decrease the amount of use because with in regards to sexual health education, there are many studies done that suggest that the more you tell young people about the minutiae of what it's like to, to be um, to have safe sex and, and that kind of thing, the less likely they are to get STIs, the less likely they are to get pregnant, the more you talk about it. But I find it interesting because often sex ed and drug education are combined now, and I just think it's an interesting conversation. It is, but I think very few people in sex education say to kids, don't have sex. They say to them, can we teach you how to have safe sex? Mm. Drug education in this country has all been about not taking drugs, not taking drugs safely. Mm. There's a difference. Whatever you say, I promise you kids are going to go out and have sex. Not as much as they say they're going to, (laughs) but they are going to, because that's human nature. Mm. So what you can do, relatively simply, is tell them how to do it safely. It's slightly more difficult with drugs, because you don't know what the drugs are, because they're out of your control. Yes. But... Putting that aside, you, it, it's easier to... It's, it's, it, they're not, they are going to take drugs, which is why what I was saying a few minutes ago, if they're going to do that, one of the safe things they can do is buy it in a regulated shop mm-hmm. rather than on a darkened street corner outside a nightclub. That's the difference between safe and unsafe. Yeah. You will never make it completely safe. So, you know, you're, you're aiming for progress, not perfection. Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective. So let's move on to the last couple of questions. Um, we've spoken about talk therapy and addiction and um, something you've been a proponent on is the, the 12-step addiction plan. And in regards, um, in the 12-step plan, there's a lot of talk about spirituality and about um, God as you know it is one of the lines in it. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on, on faith in your life and also how that links to your work and that kind of thing. Well, starting at the very beginning, um, uh, addiction is primarily a spiritual disease. I know it makes people's bodies a bit crazy and it makes their minds a bit crazy. But if you take a, 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 an addict and you take him off drugs, him or her off drugs, bodies recover really quite quickly and minds recover quite quickly on the whole. Um, it takes a bit more time to clean out the coke addicts, they get a bit crazy. But um, on the whole, that cleans out quite quickly. And what you then get left with is, a, is, a, is somebody who's physically okay and mentally okay, but spiritually rather miserable because that's how they started out. So unless you, as it were, mend their spirit, um, that, then you haven't done the whole job. And um, that is where faith comes in. And um, the, the first three steps of, of AA and NA, the first one says, I can't, and the second one says, you can, and the third one says, well, will you do it for me? Hand it over. And the person you're handed over to is, what you, is God as you understand him, or your higher power, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, it, and the group therapy thing, which is part of the same, is that if you have a very heavy suitcase, you probably can't carry it. But if you get four or five friends, together you can carry it, it's not such a big deal. Mm. So that's the group. And so the group becomes, as it were, your higher power, your, your God. And, and, I, and I, I said to you before we started this conversation, if, you want, if I want to understand my God, I just stick the extra letter in good. If you take, have a room full of 20 people and you take a little bit of the good out of each of those people, that's an awful lot of good. Mm. And that's God. That's lovely. It's kind of simple, because um, I'm a very, very simple person. Um, I'm, I'm also a country person, and I, I get closest to my God in the countryside when I'm sitting on my horse, usually with the rain pouring down my neck, or the sun coming out, and I sit and I smell the countryside and I see what's going on there. Then I'm, I get closer to my God then, because it's more natural. Yeah, and is that why... 
additionally, do you think that the, the, medica- the medicalization of addiction, recovery, means that it takes people further away from that spiritual Yes, gap, absolutely. It? it tells them, we've sorted out your body, we've sorted out your mind, therefore you're okay, but you're mm-hmm. not okay. Yeah. And, and, and uh, the important thing is get, getting people clean and sober is not about getting them off drugs. Getting them off drugs is the start. That's the easy bit. It's rebuilding their, their spirit, their, how they feel about themselves, their confidence, their ability to have relationships. Addicts are really bad at relationships. And so you have to teach them. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's, they used to talk about, in the sort of Cold War, they talked about people being brainwashed. Well, that was a horrible thing. But if you think of an addict as someone with a rather dirty brain, he needs a good wash. And when he's had a good wash, then it'll be much better. So that's a positive thing. So hopefully when you come out of treatment, um, that's where you get to. But you, you can't, it's not like mending a broken leg. You've mended the broken leg, you've done your physiotherapy, it's mended, get on with life. Addiction's not like that. You have to keep the mending process going. Mm-hmm. As soon as you stop the mending process, and that's the process of looking after your spirituality, looking after your spiritual life, looking after your ability to have relationships at, at every level. Um, if you stop doing that, you, you rapidly sink back. Because although you're, you're not an addict anymore, you're not an active addict, it's sitting there below the surface. And if you stop doing the things that you need to do to keep yourself well and happy, then the chances are you will sink back and relapse. That's why addict, addict, addiction is a relapsing condition. Mm. In treatment, they talk about the jaywalker syndrome. Is if, if you're a person and you walk along the street, pavement, and you step into the street and get run over, the Americans, you know, call jaywalking. What do you learn from this? You learn not to walk in the street, you walk on the pavement. But an addict is, is the jaywalker. An addict is the person who gets knocked down by a yellow cab because he's walking in the street, comes out of hospital and walks to the street again. And they keep going back in the street and they keep getting run over and they don't know why. Because you need to walk on the pavement. So you have to teach them to walk on the pavement. And if you relax, forget about it for a second, they step back in the road. And so that's it. So it's about making your keeping, looking after your 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 spiritual welfare, your emotional health, whatever you want to call it. Well, and everybody has a different name for it, but it's all the same thing. Yes. Thank you so much for being with us today. Absolute pleasure. We've reached the end of another episode of Faith in Politics. Thank you very much for listening. Who knows where we will be next month when we record? Who knows what will have happened with Brexit? But we know that there will be plenty to discuss next month. And as ever, if you have any questions or comments or feedback, do find us at the Joint Public Issues Team website. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to next time.